The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. This is a special program. I'm going to address the question of whether God really does care about what we believe. Uh, this is a Catholic priest's reflection on the changes in the Church since Vatican II. God does care very much what we believe about Him. And that is why He sent His own Son to us so that in knowing Jesus Christ, we might also know God the Father. Our Lord came to live and die amongst us, just so that we might know God, love him, and serve him. As Jesus said to his apostles, If you had known me, you would without doubt have known the Father also. He that seeth me, seeth the Father. That's from St. John's Gospel, chapter 14. The Savior frequently spoke of how important it is that we believe the truth. God is a spirit, and they that adore him must adore him in spirit and in truth. St. John's Gospel, chapter 4. If you continue in my word, you shall be my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Again, St. John's Gospel, chapter 8. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. St. John's Gospel, chapter 14. In promising to send the paraclete, our Lord Jesus Christ called him the Spirit of Truth, and told the disciples that when he, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he will teach you all truth. St. John, chapter 16. In the night he was betrayed, our Lord prayed in his great priestly prayer to God the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. St. John chapter 17. The Redeemer's concern that we believe the truth is quite clear in his promise of the Blessed Sacrament. Our Lord was most emphatic about the pledge to give us his own flesh and blood as food and drink. Amen, amen, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life. And I will raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me and I in him. St. John, chapter 6. The Gospel tells us that when the disciples heard these words, many scoffed at Jesus' promise. This is a hard saying. They complained among themselves. Who can listen to it? And they walked away in disgust. Perhaps our Lord could have kept them by explaining away his words, by telling them that he had meant only signs or symbols of his flesh and blood. But Christ did not pursue them, nor did he explain away his words. 
Rather, he became even more and more insistent upon them. No, those who walked away had perfectly understood our Lord. He was promising, in fact, to give them his flesh and blood as food and drink. This they would not accept. So unyielding was our Lord Jesus Christ about the strict meaning of his words, that he was even ready for the apostles themselves to abandon him. Will you also go away? He asked them. And Peter, answering for all, gave the response which every true Catholic has always given. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. St. John chapter 6. The twelve also understood our Lord to mean exactly what he had said. But, unlike the others, they believed that he could and would somehow fulfill his mysterious promise. They did not know how or when, but they believed he spoke the truth and had the power to keep his word. None of them later asked Jesus to explain when, at the Last Supper, he took bread and wine and then gave it to them, saying, Take ye and eat, this is my body. Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood. St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. In fact, if you read the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 6, which begins with our Lord working the miracle of feeding the thousands in the wilderness, and then the very next day promising them his body and blood to eat and drink. There he promised them in the synagogue of Capernaum. If you read that sixth chapter of St. John, you come to the very end, just after our Lord invites the apostles also to walk away over this teaching of our Lord, this promise of giving his body and blood, and Peter's answer. But our Lord then talks about how they are clean and clean at heart because they believe, but our Lord says not all of them, not all. Because our Lord Jesus Christ knew who it would be who would betray him. So the the chapter, the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel ends by a reference to Judas and Judas's decision to betray our Lord. And the placement of that statement of divine revelation about Judas's decision to betray our Lord means that it is very closely associated with the promise of our Lord to give his body and blood as food and drink. And in a way, we can understand the connection there. <clears throat> Peter says, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. But you see, Judas was a worldly man. He was a thief. He kept the purse of donations to the apostles. He was willing to betray our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He was a very worldly, venal man. And so you can see, when our Lord had thousands of people gathering to him, and he was feeding them with a handful of bread and some fishes, and they wanted to take our Lord the very day before and make him their king, how Judas, in a very worldly way, reveled in that position, that he was one of the chosen twelve of this great rabbi, this great teacher, this great miracle worker. What a future he had with thousands of quasi-adoring people, right? 
and he being the close associate of this miracle worker. And then our Lord promises his body and blood as their food and drink. And Judas stands there and watches hundreds, maybe thousands of people walk away. This is one of those things that set Judas on the track here to be start to be thinking about in terms of what he would do to salvage the situation for Judas. Where were the interests of Judas in all this? If Jesus of Nazareth was going to begin saying such outrageous things, that now he would be driving people away from away from him and away from Judas. One can almost hear Judas when our Lord made the promise, Amen, Amen, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. We can almost hear Judas thinking, What are you saying? What are you saying? You're going to ruin everything. There's a reason why Judas turned. <clears throat> Judas did not accept what our Lord was saying, but he didn't have the integrity to walk away from our Lord. He continued to live the lie and the life of a traitor. Read the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. Come to the last couple of verses and you'll see exactly what I mean. <clears throat> the promise of the Blessed Sacrament had so much to do with Judas's decision to betray our Lord. The Roman Catholic Church always taught that truth is of the greatest importance. But in the past 50 years, profound changes have swept the Church affecting every aspect of Catholic life. These changes were the work of modernists, with a new mentality of ecumenism, a mentality which considers unity to be more important than truth. These modernists believed that in the past the Church, the Catholic Church, had sacrificed unity by upholding its doctrine. Now, they think the Church must sacrifice doctrine in order to unite with other religions. The Mass is the highest expression of the Catholic faith. Because the rule of praying sets the rule for believing, the traditional Mass was the biggest obstacle to changing the faith. But the modernists knew that if they could change the way Catholics pray, if they could change the way Catholics worship, they could change the way Catholics think, and they could also change the way Catholics believe. The traditional Mass was not ecumenical, any more than Christ himself was ecumenical. He doesn't just come and say, I am a Savior, I am a way and a truth and a life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the Savior, I am the Son of God, and the Son of Man at the same time. No, our Lord was not ecumenical, but they wanted the Catholic faith to be changed so dramatically that it would actually be substituted by something that was ecumenical, and they want to substitute our Lord Jesus Christ with an ecumenical Savior of and for the world. They want a Savior who is not only in the world, but not of the world. They want a Savior that is of the world. And so the modernists replaced the true Mass, the traditional Mass, with a new Mass, so-called. 
their new order of Mass. <clears throat> to make sure that their new worship would be acceptable to non-Catholics, they had even six Protestant ministers help them to compose the new service to make sure that the new Mass would not be offensive to Protestants. <clears throat> However, the Mass was not the first target of the ecumenists. The first sacrament to be changed was the rite of ordination to the priesthood. This was completely rewritten in 1968, and after the new Mass was issued a year later, many priests left the priesthood, claiming to suffer from an, quote, an identity crisis. The resulting shortage of priests and empty seminaries did not deter the ecumenists, but rather encouraged them. It fit neatly into their plans. This was actually their goal, because now the lay people would take over many duties of the priest, just as they do in Protestant churches. They don't really have a clergy. They have ministers who are chosen from among the laity, who can come out of the laity and blend and go right back into the laity yet again. They don't have a priesthood in the Protestant churches. And the modernists had every intention of liquidating the real Catholic priesthood in their Novus Ordo. And so the laity began to read the epistle and the gospel, to make up prayers, to lead invocations, even to deal out the communion wafers, hand to hand. The ecumenical mentality has been so successful that now many Catholics are no different in faith and morals and worship than any Protestant, even the most liberal of Protestants. The rest of the Catholics who still believe in the Catholic faith are considered rather odd conservatives who are outside the mainstream of Reformed Catholic life. The modern church even makes a distinction between the standard new mass and what they call the extraordinary form, the vestiges of the traditional faith they still retain. They call the extraordinary form. They spent the first 20 years trying to completely annihilate it. And failing that, they decided they had to control it. And so they began adopting some vestiges of the traditional Catholic practice, including the Latin Mass, having updated it to 1962 with the changes of John XXIII, the one who called the Second Vatican Council. And now they're putting these things forward as though they are the real Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic faith, but they're really not. But they're close enough now, after 20 years, um, when they introduced them in 1988, 1989, that people thought, my goodness, these are so conservative compared to what we've had, that this must be a return to the traditional Catholic faith. But it's not. Just enough to be deceptive. <clears throat> so these, these conservative Catholics actually stay in their own parishes or go to some indult mass or some Samorum Pontificum mass, the, the modern incarnations of the uh, Latin mass, as that has been retooled by the Novus Ordo authorities. And they even feel like strangers. <clears throat> Many conservative Catholics feel like strangers in their own parishes. Many even live in dread from Sunday to Sunday, not knowing what new mockery of the Catholic faith they will find in their own parish churches. Slowly, little by little, 
these good people are either brought to accept the new religion, or they drift away from the church in silent disgust, perhaps never to return. Perhaps they even abandon the faith and join some false religion, some false sect that is not the Catholic faith, but offers them some wholesome doctrine of family values or whatever, because this is all they think is left. This is exactly what the ecumenical design hopes they will do. Give up. If they cannot accept the new ways, then let them at least leave quietly. But the Catholic Church has never before needed them so much. If you are one of the many Catholics who feel like strangers in their parish churches, then there is something you can and must do. You can resist the progressive deterioration of your Catholic faith by remaining true to the traditional Catholic Mass and sacraments. Yes, many Catholic priests still do offer the traditional Mass. Many more than you might think have remained faithful through this war against the faith waged by the modernists. In 1907, Pope St. Pius X issued an encyclical warning about the errors of modernists, who planned to change the Church in order to bring the Church up to date with the modern world. A central part of their plan was to reform the Church's worship, especially the Mass. At the end of a 20-year-long series of changes which began in 1948, the modernists eventually succeeded in producing their new order of Mass, what we call the Novus Ordo. For 20 years after they brought out their new liturgy in 1969, the modernists tried to ban the traditional Mass altogether. And failing in this in 1988, they agreed to permit, on a very limited basis, the 1962 Missal, which contained many of the changes that they had made. Unfortunately, some priests who rejected the modernist mass, but who wanted to stay in the good graces of the modernist bishops, accepted permission, so-called, to use this 1962 indult mass, subject to their approval, the approval and the control of the modernists. The whole idea was to keep conservative Catholics in the orbit of the Novus Ordo, to keep them in their parish churches, to keep them, their children, and their money in the Novus Ordo. Other priests, individually or in association, have rejected the new Mass only to adopt the liturgy with some of the other modernist changes, such as the Dialogue Mass, which was a step on the way to the new order. Now, one group of priests, the Society of St. Pius V, offers the traditional Latin Mass without any of the modernist changes introduced gradually from 1948 through 1969 and 70. These priests view the whole process of change as unified by the same modernist principles, all directed for the same result. All the changes made during those years were all based for the same reasons, and they were all directed to the same purpose, produce a new order of liturgy, which is not the traditional Catholic Mass. It's not, and never was intended to be, 
the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary offered on the altar. But it was always intended to be an ecumenical meal as a memorial service of Christ's sacrifice and would be put on a table, simply said on a table in the midst of the people. The difference between the traditional Mass and this Novus Ordo could not be stated more essentially than that. That one is the sacrifice of Calvary and the other simply remembers the sacrifice of Calvary like any other Protestant service. One is the sacrifice of reparation for sin and the other is merely a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But the Council of Trent of the Catholic Church said dogmatically, if anyone says that the Mass is merely a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and not a sacrifice of reparation for sin, anathema, anathema sit, let him be expelled from the Church. That's the judgment of the traditional Catholic faith against the new Mass. The Council of Trent says that if anyone should say that the Mass is only a memorial service that recalls the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. It is not the actual sacrifice of Christ. Anathemasit, he is expelled from the church. This is the judgment of the Catholic Church laid down as a matter of dogma hundreds of years before the new Mass even saw the light of day. So the priests who have decided to stay with the, the teaching and the practice of the entire traditional faith without compromising with the modernist Novus Ordo view this whole process of change as modernist from beginning to end. And the same result is there to destroy the traditional faith by destroying the traditional mass, replacing it with their modernist new order, new order of worship, and a new order of faith and belief. The Society of St. Pius V rejects the entire destructive process and holds unwaveringly to the Latin Mass of the traditional Roman Rite. Ordered by Pope St. Pius V in his 1970 decree, I'm sorry, in his 1570 decree, in his 1570 decree, 400 years before the Novus Ordo, the decree is known as Quo Primum, in which that Pope, St. Pius V, said unequivocally that every Catholic priest would have the right to offer the traditional Latin Mass, and no one could take that right away from him. No one. The traditional Latin Mass of the Catholic Church continues despite the efforts of many to silence it once and for all. Does it really matter? Well, if you are a Catholic who believes that the truth does matter, then take a moment to inquire about the traditional Catholic Mass in your area. Come home to your traditional Catholic faith. The ecumenical mentality, the truth is secondary, has no place among Catholics or anyone who would wish to follow Jesus Christ. But let us all never forget that our Lord once stood before Pontius Pilate and said of himself, For this was I born, and for this came I into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Again, St. John's Gospel, chapter 18. 
Yes, God does care very much what we believe about him. Well, God bless you. And please pray for me, and I assure you that I will be praying for you also.